I would invite you to take out your Bible, open to the book of Psalm, chapter 13. I know you're accustomed and probably expected me to say John just then. Open to the Gospel of John, for that's where we've been for many months. And we will be returning there in short order. But this morning, I want us to spend some time together in Psalm chapter 13. Uh, this past week, as we said in our opening, was a, a blessed time together to focus upon the glory of God in the life of His church. To think about who this God is and what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. Last Lord's Day, we, we talked about through the peace of the cross, through the peace that is brought to us with God and one another through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the peace of the cross, we've been brought near to God and bound to one another. And uh, hopefully you recall that going back to last week from Ephesians chapter 2. And we talked about through the blood of Jesus Christ, He took you and I, who were once His enemies, haters of God, despisers of God. He saved us by grace and brought us to Himself through the blood of Jesus Christ, bringing the forgiveness of our sins against Him as Christ paid them upon the cross. And because of Christ, because Christ paid the debt, the sin debt that I owed, now I can be brought near to God. And not just me individually, God has done that in the lives of others. As you look around you this morning, we're here this morning because of the work of God's grace. And He's brought us together as a church and bound us together. And then um, Paul gives us certain pictures of what the church is. It's a it's a, we're citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. We're a family, and we are now the temple of God. And uh, we spent a great amount of time this past week thinking about those images, uh, not just last Sunday morning, but through some of the various preachers we heard this week. I stand here before you this morning to say every word of that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Through the peace of the cross, we have been brought near to God and bound to one another as new citizens of the kingdom of God, bound together as a family, bound together as the true temple of God. And that's why God tells us as the church, as new believers, things like this, rejoice always. To walk in joy, which is, First Peter says, unspeakable and full of joy. Walk in joy that is unspeakable, that's so filled with joy that even there's, I can't put it in words. And even that joy is full of joy. And we hear passages like that and we're like, amen, yes. But then I look at my own personal experience and it doesn't always line up with that. I look at him individually for me as a, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. Everything we've said this week is absolutely true. Through the peace of the cross, we've been brought near to God and bound together as the church of Jesus Christ. Absolutely true. Therefore, we should be filled with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. But the reality is that for many people in the church of Jesus Christ, it's a struggle. They struggle with despair. They struggle with darkness. And it creates confusion. It creates confusion. It creates all kinds of questions. Well, this is what a church is, and this is the effect of Christ upon the church. Joy and expressible and full of joy. But I look at my life, and even when I gather together with my church, as a new kingdom, as a new family, as a new temple, I don't see this. And even sometimes I leave my church discouraged and in despair. And the confusion is, should this be? Is there something wrong with me? Is there, is there something I don't know? Should mature Christians really be struggling in this way? Should there be such a, a distance between what should be, Christ says, and what is in my soul? And I know this is the question because it's been my question for years. It's been a struggle with me for years. And I know it is for many of you. The answer to the question 
Should Christians, do Christians struggle with this, mature Christians? The answer is yes. Most do. And I want us to think a little bit about that together this morning. David gives us a wonderful word of hope in Psalm chapter 13. I hope you're there, and I hope you'll follow along with me this morning as we continue to think about being the church of Jesus Christ, being the people of God, brought near by the blood of Christ. And when my experience doesn't line up with what God tells me is true. Psalm 13, beginning in verse 1. David, King David, writes this. Maybe you've not used these exact words, but tell me if you can't hear the echo of cries you've cried in silence or just in, in a privacy out to God. Verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted or feel like they're winning over me. Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord simply because He has dealt bountifully with me. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we praise you for the great and glorious God that you are who has laid claim upon our lives in eternity past. You have called us out of darkness, called us into the light, called us in Christ Jesus and made provision for the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, His life, His death upon the cross, and His resurrection. Father, we are here this morning because of You. Lord, we are mindful that at this very moment, there are literally multitudes of people who have no interest in You, no desire for You, no desire to gather in a place like this to worship. And we're here, again, not because we're better, not because we're more spiritual, but because of you, you have done a work in us that we could have never done ourselves. And we, we praise you and thank you for that. But Lord, again, just as we prayed in the prayer meeting this morning, Lord, we are children, needy children. We are not yet what your word tells us you are ultimately turning us into. We are growing to maturity, but we're not there yet. And in this world, Father, there are struggles that we have. Fears, darkness, despair. And we thank you that it's not the continual way of life. It's not that there's never any light. But Lord, when we do go through times like this, oh, it confuses us. We don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And so, Father, we come to you this morning and pray the presence of your Spirit to be our teacher, to be our guide, to be our helper, to be our strength, to open our eyes, to see we're not alone. To see that what we struggle with is not unique to us. And to show us how this man of God, inspired by your spirit, overcame the darkness and despair that he was facing. Lord, I know for a fact that beginning with me, there are many in this room, even this morning, who are dwelling in despair and just need hope. They need help. And we thank you that in your kindness you've given it. And the hope has a name. It is Jesus. Help us to believe that. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds too simple. It sounds too religious. What else would we expect to hear here? Open our eyes to believe. Your provision of Christ is enough for our darkest moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Life is hard for every one of you, every one of us. And it's not unique to us. This is not like I often have this conversation with a, a family member of mine. Jake, I'm just worried about this world we live in. It's never been this bad before. Well, that's just not true. I, no argument here. Yeah, things are bad. You look around, you see what's going on in our culture and around the world. No argument things are bad, but it's 
nonsense to not understand that through history, there have been times where things have been much worse than this. They really have. We're not alone in the struggles we face in our day and age. We can look back. One British preacher that I often quote from, I think you probably know the name very well, C.H. Spurgeon, suffered from terrible bouts of depression. He had several, several significant health issues that were constantly triggering within him just seasons of darkness and despair where even Spurgeon in his autobiography said, I didn't even want to get out of bed. Once he told his congregation in a sermon, my soul chooseth strangling rather than life. What do you mean there? I'm just at a point right now, I'd rather die. And that comes from Spurgeon, the pinnacle of preachers. Spurgeon wasn't alone. Martin Luther, another Christian man we sometimes talk about, sometimes struggle with deep depression. Other pastors throughout church history, John Henry Jowett, Alexander White, G. Campbell Morgan, were very open and honest about their own struggles with despair. In Numbers chapter 10, we have Moses, right? Great Moses who wrote books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, who God hid in the cleft of the rock and allowed Moses to see his glory pass by. Moses, in Numbers chapter 10, is full of joy, and then in Numbers chapter 11, was so depressed, he asked God to take his life. Moses isn't schizophrenic. Moses is just like you and I. Moses is just like King David. This author of Psalm chapter 13 we just read is King David himself. David, that spiritual giant of God's word. David, the slayer of Goliath. David, the man who God says is a man after my own heart. David, the great and mighty warrior. David is one who's very open and honest about in Psalm chapter 13, which is one of many psalms that he wrote on this topic. He's very open and honest about his dark struggle and despair at this particular season of life that he's in. Here's what one wife and mother who was active in her church, had a wonderful home, had a wonderful marriage, had wonderful children. Here's how she framed it. In poem, eyes get red from weeping, the heavy weights of sorrow press down. Depression, that serpent of despair, slithers silently through the soul's back door. Despair is debilitating, defeating, deepening gloom. Trudging wearily through the grocery store, unable to make a simple choice or to count out correct change. Surveying an unbelievably messy house, piles of laundry, work undone, and yet not being able to lift a finger. Doubting that God cares, doubting in my prayers, doubting He's even there. Sitting, staring wild-eyed into space, listen to this closing phrase, desperately wanting out of the human race. Do you hear the despair? Sounds a little bit like Spurgeon, doesn't it? I just want out. And by that, out of the human race. These things that we see Spurgeon, or that we see Luther, or that we see Moses, or King David, or even this mother going through, there is hope. And this morning... David shows us from Psalm chapter 13 that even those seasons of despair, pay attention to this. It's a lesson I'm, I'm a knucklehead that I'm not always paying attention to. That these seasons of despair, God intends for a purpose. And he will accomplish that purpose. But it's not meant to linger in perpetually. There is victory over these things, but it requires patience and focus on the Lord. Patience that whatever whatever my God ordains is right. There's a purpose. I don't understand it. 
this is not what I would have chosen. But whatever, this I know about God. He's good. He's holy. He's sovereign. He has a purpose for everything. And what it requires from me is patience and to focus on him. I want to break down Psalm chapter 13 in three parts this morning, focusing first upon our sorrow, the reality of depression and despair in the human condition, our sorrow. In Psalm chapter 13, David is undeniably experiencing serious sorrow. He asks a question four times right here in verses 1 and 2. How long? How long, he asks. Look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And fourth, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It seems like, if given the opportunity, David would have gone on and on and on and on and on. Untold number of times. Lord, how long? And I'll just ask you, have you been there in a season of life? And it's, it's just, it's nothing but darkness and gloom. Such emotional pain and, and struggle and internal strife and conflict and confusion and emptiness and loneliness. And you know God is out there somewhere. I mean, there's, God by grace has given you that revelation of himself, but yet how long? Over and over, you ask the question day after day after day. Driven into this by some circumstance, something that's happened, and you just don't see any way out of it. That's where David is. And David's in pain. He's hurting. He's listless. He doesn't have answers. You ever try to get in touch with somebody on the, on the phone and they just don't answer the phone? Maybe it's an important phone call. And you're trying over and over and over. They just don't pick up your call. I remember when I was um, in a different position by vocationally, I was needing to constantly get in touch with people to just talk about various things. And as people became more aware of, oh, it's Jake calling. Oh, this is why he's calling. Fewer and fewer people ever answered the phone. Same response I have when people do that to me. So I get it. But it created in the job that I was in, it created a hopelessness, a helplessness. I can't survive. If I can't get people to talk to me, if I can't get people to answer the phone when I call. Sometimes we feel that way with God. We're calling and calling and calling in prayer. Where are you, God? How long do I have to suffer? How long do I have to go through this? How long do you intend this? And it sounds like he won't pick up. Now, we know theologically, Hebrews 13, 5, God will never leave us nor forsake us, but our experience oftentimes feels like abandonment. Our faith says, this I know, God will never leave me or forsake me. But then my foggy human view experiences, but man, it sure feels like he has. And that's where David is. A man after God's own heart feels like God has forgotten him. How long, O oh Lord, will, will you forget me forever? Verse 1 asks. You know, when, when things are fun, time flies, right? Like if you're at a party or something good, you, I mean, time just flies by. But when things are bad, what happens to the clock then? It's just the opposite. It's the adverse effect. Days now, <laughs> feels like there's more than 24 hours in a day. Over and over and over again. And that's kind of where David is. How long? It just seems like it's going on perpetually forever and ever. And so I think for you and I, as saints of God, we need to understand, even as we look at David this morning, I have no doubt you've been there. I've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. Here we see a dedicated Christian suffering from the real pain a feeling like God has forgotten them. Even when God says, he has never forsaken you and will never forsaken you. But here, David, it's clear. He feels as though God has. 
Isaiah 49, 16 says that God has graven your name upon his hands. That's how devoted and giving of himself to you he is. He will never forsake you, never, but circumstances, he feels like it. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's preparing to go to the cross. He's, he's crying out to God in prayer, and he's so overcome by what he's experienced, he's sweating blood, right? None of We may have some sweaters in here who sweat, even in the, on a day like this. You go run, you're going to be pouring sweat. But I, I doubt seriously, I was about to say a promise, but I'm going to doubt seriously. Anyone has ever sweat with such intensity that blood comes where it should be sweat. Well, that's what Jesus is going through. What is Jesus, what is the, the what's going on there that's causing that? It's that he at the cross will be forsaken by his father. He will be alienated by his father. Why? Because he's going as God's enemy. He's taking your sin and my sin to the cross to pay the penalty for them. And in that moment, he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's the thing. When you are going through times when you feel like you're being forsaken by God and you think, it just seems so dumb to cry out to Christ in prayer. No, where else would you turn? He's the only one who does know what it is to be forsaken by the God, by, by the Father. And oh, by the way, he was forsaken so that you never would be, and I never would be. So we can go even with, it feels like I've been forsaken, to the one who was forsaken, and he's going to understand your feelings better than anybody you can get on your phone. If they answer the phone, your best friend, you ever called your friend and, and you're pouring out your heart and you're just like, they're not getting it. They're not giving me. They're not listening. They're not, I'm needing something from them and they're not doing it. And you get frustrated with that individual or that group. They don't know. But there is someone who does. Because you who were never forsaken, Christ was forsaken. Go to Him. Cry out. And you say, Jake, I am. I'm doing it. Persist. Wait patiently. We do often feel forsaken. That's where David is. How long will you hide your face from me? That's what David felt like. Felt like God was just gone. Well, he wasn't gone. He promises he will never. What God was hiding from David was how God was intending to use this, use this as the end product. What David couldn't see is what God was doing in this to mold and shape and change David into what God intended him to be. And the same is true for you and I. What God hides from us is not his face. He will never leave or forsake. Our names are graven on, are graven on his hands, on his heart. What he does hide from us and what sometimes really is what the issue is, is I don't see the purpose in this. I don't understand why you would do this. Well, hey, there is a why. But we don't see it. It reminds me of the words of Job, chapter 23. He knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, when God, who directs my steps, which included for Job, what? He lost his family, his children were all killed. Yet Job says, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. God intended that for a purpose. And unfortunately, or fortunately, let's frame it correctly. Sometimes we perceive it to be God's ways are not our ways, and God's timing is not our timing. You ever watched one of these documentaries on the um, building of a car? Everything's all automized, automated now, right? Everything has a very specific role. And, and, and so, you know, whether it's putting in a windshield or whether it's putting in a uh, motor or whatever, I don't know anything about cars, but, you know, they're going down the conveyor belt and they're putting stuff on. Everything is timed out perfectly, isn't it? 
everything. Every part is, is measured methodically. It's going to fit perfectly. And the timing of it as it goes down this conveyor belt, is, it's moving slow. And you would think, man, you could sure produce more cars if you speed this thing up. But the problem is what? It needs to move at this pace because everything is automated so precisely, so sequentially. Every person who plays a role or every machinery that plays a role is placed so perfectly. It's got to move at this pace so that everything comes and forms it perfectly. The same thing is true with God, sovereign God, who is sovereign over our lives. He has shaped us and formed us from before the foundation of the world. He knew us, has a purpose for us. And we, in and of ourselves, are not yet what He intends us to be. And so He's shaping us and molding us. And He's using various things. He's using His Word. He's using His church. He's also using seasons of despair, seasons of darkness, seasons and trials and circumstances that we would never choose ourselves. He's using them to shape and mold us. And even those feelings like, God, where are you? You're not here. You've hidden your face from me. No, he hasn't. If you're a child of God, no, he hasn't. He knows what he's doing. He's controlling your darkness from on high. He's controlling the intensity of it from on high. And he has a purpose for it. He has an end product for you in mind. And this is where I get frustrated, and you do too. Things sure do move slowly a lot of times in the darkness. From our viewpoint, anyway. But to him, one day is a thousand years, one thousand years is a day. He's omnipresent over time. He's not concerned about the length of our days, he's concerned about his eternal plans and purposes and how he is using us in it. So, in despair, David is asking, How long? But not only that, if you read, continue reading in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He's he's framed as how long, but it's almost as though he's saying, Lord, how low are you going to let me go? Not only how long are you hiding yourself from, but how low are you going to let me go? Because just when I think it can't get any worse, I wake up to a new day, a new challenge. I get another phone call and holy smokes, it's worse than the day before. And the next day, worse than the day before. How low are you going to let me go? David's not unique in this. His experience is common. What David is getting swept away by are his emotions. Every day is so weighty and heavy, he he can't cling to the promises of God. He's trying, and ultimately he will, but in the moment... He's having difficulty reflecting on, but my God is sovereign, and he has a purpose in this, and so I'm going to endure patiently. I recognize here on a Sunday morning in this setting, it sounds so probably even condescending to you. There you are up there speaking to my problems, trying to bring this to bear. You don't know how dark and how long and how deep, and you're right. But I would also say to you, vice versa. (laughs) What David is saying, as I go deeper and deeper into despair, I can't stop my anger. I can't stop my frustration. I can't stop the feelings of abandonment, the feelings of loneliness, the feelings like there's something wrong with me. David's losing control, if you will. And then verse, the second part of verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Not only how long shall I have sorrow in my heart all the day long, but then he has a very real situation going on around him, an enemy, a foe, if you will. How long, how, how much victory are you going to let this enemy have over me? He's been brought low by defeat after defeat after defeat at the hands of his enemies. 
Most likely at this episode in David's life, it's King Saul who hates David and wants him dead. Now, I've got enemies. You do too. I'm not aware of any of them that want me dead. Potentially, they harbor that in their head or heart. But these are the foes that David is going up against. Saul, his enemy, seems like there's no stopping him. How long shall my enemy be exalted? Saul has all the resources he needs. He has all the soldiers he needs. He has all the times he needs. Saul is going to steamroll me. You're going to let that happen, God. Well, most of us probably don't have literal human enemies to this extent. Most of us. But as Christians, we do have enemies. We go back to our sermon series through the book of Revelation. That was Christ's message to His church. For you and I in our day, that yes, Christ is victorious. He's our conquering King. We have victory over everything in Him. But even until Christ returns, we have a constant battle raging with Satan. Who really, Satan doesn't give a rip about me. It's Christ he hates. And I, as a child of, of Christ, with the world, and with my own flesh. But we do have enemies. And the devil himself is one who Peter says is roaring like a lion looking for someone to devour. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression says this, the devil is the adversary of our souls. He can, and I think this is wise, he can use our temperaments, our physical condition. He so deals with us that we can allow our temperament to control and govern us instead of keeping temperament where it should be kept. There is no end to the ways the devil produces spiritual depression. We must always bear him in mind. Again, not because we fear Satan. In fact, if you go back and look at the Revelation series we did, Satan is one who, yes, he devours like a lion, but what we don't always see, he's chained up. God has chained him. Through the resurrection, God has victory. Christ has victory over Satan. And Satan is an instrument of Christ for Christ's purposes. Now, his, the danger is real. If he sinks his teeth into you, it's a painful process. But God is the one who's in control of that and using that for his purposes. But the enemy is real. And what David here is talking about is, man, I just feel like I'm constantly defeated by my enemy. And I bet you've been in a season where you feel that as well. I'm not talking about the devil made me do it. I'm not talking about that kind of thing, that fallacy. The devil didn't make you do anything. The devil contempt, but I have a sin nature. I'm going to do what I want to do. But I am talking about what Lloyd-Jones talks about. God oftentimes, like he did in Job's life, gives Satan access to different parts of our being for God's purposes. But Satan can't do anything more than what God allows. But he is a very real foe. David was learning right here something that, as we continue reading, he always struggled to believe. That God's purpose in the trials that God brought was that he was preparing David for him, for his service. And that's true for your struggles as well as mine. What God is doing, the length of our struggle, the depth of our struggle, there's always a purpose behind it. Now, I don't know specifically what his purpose for yours is or mine is. My goodness, I don't know what mine is. I'd love to know. I can't tell you that. But what we can see is what David knew, what Martin Lloyd-Jones knew, what Spurgeon knew, what Luther knew. What I bet that woman whose poem we read at the beginning ultimately found out and knew. After the fact, my goodness. I had no idea when all this was going on what God was doing in me and through me. And now because He sent me through it, I'm able to serve Him in this way. You'll have to wait and see. I don't know. But that's what David experienced. And because of this, he prays, verses 3 and 4. Notice he prays. He doesn't just kind of let the darkness and despair just kind of cut him off and be like, 
You're not coming near me, I'm not coming near you. Right? Kind of a childishness. But he prays. He's been crying out about his struggle. Then verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Here we're looking at our prayers. We saw first our sorrows. Now here in verses 3 and 4, our prayers. In the midst of our sorrows, here's our right prayers to God. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now there's a lot of Hebrew imagery there. You read that and you're just kind of like, I have no idea what he's praying. In the Hebrew idioms there, the eyes spoke of life. The eyes spoke of strength, physical strength, mental strength, emotional strength, spiritual strength. Dim eyes mean weak strength, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. Bright eyes, well-lit eyes are strong in faith, strong in might, mentally, physically, spiritually. So what the, the psalmist is desiring here when he's, when he's praying Oh, Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. What? I, I'm, this thing is killing me. Give me strength. Shine your face upon me to make my eyes brighten. Restore to me. Strengthen my mind. Strengthen my heart. Strengthen my body. Strengthen my soul. David seems like a tossing and turning kind of guy. Lay in bed at night, you got the weight of the world on you, I just can't sleep. Tossing and turning. There's probably many of you in here just like that. Wondering what to do. Thinking of a solution only to be reminded it won't work. What do you do when you're tossing and turning? Well, I get it, you're probably expecting this answer on a Sunday morning at church. But as we're going to see here, it was the right thing to do. When we're stripped down and weak and have nothing left, turn to God. Worship God. Look to God. Look to Christ. That's what David is doing here. In the midst, how long, how deep, I feel forsaken. But I don't have anywhere else to turn. There's no one else who can help me. You, oh God, I just continue to persist in prayer, in worship. Is that your first instinct when trials come? I reference back Job, chapter 1. God allows Satan to take away Job's everything. His riches, his children, ten children. What did Job do in the very next instance? Job 1, verse 20, yeah. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, he's sovereign. The Lord takes away, he's sovereign. I have no right to any of it myself. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worships. What do we do when we're in how long, how deep, how far? We are prone to grumble, prone to cry. And I'm not saying those are wrong. Those are probably real emotions. But I know in my life, I've not really been helped by grumbling and complaining. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't even make me feel better. Sometimes in that moment, I think it does, but it doesn't. Crying, I'm a crier by nature. When I'm done crying, when I don't have any tears left, I'm still there left with having to deal with it. When all is stripped from us and nothing else, what, what do we do? Spurgeon gave this counsel to another who was struggling in despair like he did. Oh, dear friend, when thy grief presses thee to the very dust, worship there. Spurgeon was a man who knew the hurts himself. That would have been the counsel to his own heart. That was what he did. And this is how he counsels others. When, when your grief, when your despair takes you down to the dust, worship there. It may not feel like it. But cling to the things you know are true. 
nail your emotions to truth. My experiences are giving me conflict. My experiences are confusing me. My experiences are calling into question whether I really believe these things. But here's what I know. God says, He has laid claim to me since before the foundation of the world that I am His. That through the cross of Jesus Christ, I've been brought near. My sin debt which separated me from Him has been forgiven through Christ upon the cross. The, the veil has been torn in tune. I've been given access to Him. It feels like I've been forsaken. Yet He says, here's the truth, I will neither leave nor forsake you. He says in Isaiah that my name is graven on His hands. My experience tells me these things are not true. But this is what is true. And so God, I worship You. I praise You. And there may be even a sense you're just kind of going through the motions. There may be a sense that, listen, I get it. When you go through seasons like this, listen, it's hard to come to church. Imagine being the guy who has to come up and preach the sermon. There's Sundays I don't want to be here. But I got to be here. And not only that, I got to have something to say. And the things you say have to be true. And you just got to cling to those things that are true. Nailing those emotions to the truth. That's what David is doing here. Oh Lord, my God. I don't feel like you're my God right now. That's what verses 1 and 2 are saying. But in his prayer, what's he clinging to? This is what I know. You've said you are my God. This is what you can do. I'm asking you to do it. Light up my eyes. Bring strength. Bring life. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice over me. I think a lot of times, even as Christians, we look at this world and we expect too much from it. From our marriages, from our children, from our jobs, from our finances. We lay claim to a lot of things here and we expect these things are going to be my savior. These things are going to be my joy, my hope. And then what happens? Your spouse lets you down. Maybe it hurts you considerably. Are those children that are so precious to us grow up and make their own decisions and don't call anymore or don't come around anymore or make decisions that are, that's not how you were raised. And I've still got younger ones. I haven't got there yet, but I can imagine the pain and frustration and guilt. What did I do wrong? What did I do? Or the job that just, just or, or the finances that aren't there. What did I do? Well, Christian, keep in mind what Paul said about the cross of Jesus Christ. We've been purchased out of this world because this, we were never made for this world in the first place. Marriage wasn't for you or me. It was created, Paul says in Ephesians, to be a picture of Christ in the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You're serving Christ in your marriage, not necessarily directly, fundamentally, first and foremost, your spouse. Parenting, we're showing the fatherhood of God. Family, we're showing the family of God. This world is not what we were made for. Even our jobs are given to us. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we're looking to the things in this world to bring us joy and happiness, we will live in a constant state of perpetual despair. Because they're, they're, I promise you, we're coming up on the Christmas season. Whatever they bring out, it's going it's to be shiny, it's going to be sharp, it's going to look nice. Look, i got to have it. And you may get some of it. And you're going to realize real quick, I'm still as empty as I ever was. Where am I going to find hope? Where am I going to find healing? We were made for something more than this world. We were made for Christ. And could it be that even in the struggles that David is going through in verses 3 and 4, even with his enemies, God is just simply taking away everything that's not Christ. I know it hurts to lose whatever that is. Your hobby, your marriage, your family, your job, your pride, your ego, your standing, your reputation. But brother or sister, I, I didn't save you for you. 
I didn't save you so that you would relish in this world. You're saying, I, I pulled you out of this world for another world where Christ, it's all about Him. It's about His glory, His rule, His reign, His beauty, His majesty. You were made for Him. That void in your heart that you're trying to fill with this relationship, this, this job, this thing, whatever the case. It was, it's a Christ-shaped void that only He can fill. And in the hurt, the prayer is, shine Christ into me. Open my strength in me. Not that I'm inherently strong, but that Christ, I'm made strong in Christ. That in Him is everything that I need. That in Him, I'm ready to forsake all else. Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had in Paul, listen, for all his, who he was post-Christian, pre-Christian, this was a man of status. This was a man of education. This was a man who was Jew of all Jews, Hebrew of all Hebrews. This was the man in the eyes of the world. Saul, previous to his conversion, later named Paul. Paul says, whatever gain I used to have, I now count as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all those accolades I used to have, all that prestige. I count everything as lost because of, listen to this, the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. I look at all these things the world could give me, and I look at the beauty, the majesty, the worth of Christ. What in the world was I living for? That is far more valuable than this. And here's the problem for you and I. Oh, we can hear that on a Sunday morning. The question is, is Christ of that in, 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 in estimable <laughs> worth to you? Cannot be in, in estimated. Cannot fathom it. Is he of that worth to you? This is what David is fighting for. The value of Christ. The value of God. And realizing that everything that God is doing in your life is chipping away things that are not Christ so that you'll have nothing left but to find in Christ everything you've ever been looking for. Is that your prayer in the midst of your darkness? God, oh, the chipping away, the chiseling away, it's painful. I don't get it. I don't understand. But if it shows me, if it brings me to the place that finally I'm ready to quit trying to find my all in all and all the things of the world and find it in Christ, then you keep chiseling. And you take me as long and as deep as you need to take me to show me that Christ is all. And the psalm closes with now our sorrow, our prayer, our worship. Listen to David sing in verses 5. I mean, this is the same man who in verses 1 and 2, how long, how long, how long, how long, closes out just a few verses later in worship. The world looks at this and thinks David might be schizophrenic. I mean, in the blink of an eye, this guy has gone from suicidal to worshiping God. What has made the difference? Verses 3 and 4. God, I realize you're at work. There's a process. You're molding me, shaping me, bringing me to what you intend me to be. There's a purpose behind this. And that purpose is linked to my love for Jesus, my devotion to Jesus, and dying off to all else. Therefore, verses 5 and 6, I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's not where he began. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully What's he singing here? God, I don't always feel it, but here's what I know. Your love for me, your unrelenting, steadfast love. You've said in Jeremiah, you have loved me with an everlasting love. Your love is not tied to me on, based on what I do. It's a devotion you've made to me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's something to sing about. And that's what... David is singing about. When the despair is dominating you, be reminded who God is and His love for you. And then he closes out, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He's dealt bountifully with me. He's singing of the salvation He has. He's singing of God's sufficiency. He has dealt bountifully with me. As difficult as things feel for David, 
still better than what David deserves as a sinner. The darkness you're in, you wouldn't have chosen it. But the alternative of what you and I deserve as a sinner against a holy God, God, you've dealt bountifully well with me. God's purpose in the despair, in the darkness, is to mold us, shape us into the image of Christ for His service. For His service. There is no higher goal than that, than to be used by Almighty God for His glory and the joy of others in their lives. The struggle that you're going through, others are. Maybe God is using, preparing you to use you in their lives, just as God used David in our lives to point them to Christ. We close with, you ever seen how a pearl is made? Where does a pearl come from originally? Where do you find it? Huh? Yeah. It's, it's there. It's, it's in a clam. It's, it's in the sand. And how does whatever's going on, you've opened up a clam before, and you know it's not always pearly stuff. How does that goo turn into a pearl? Through a long season of friction. A long season of pressure and things going on outside and within. But something amazing is happening in that clam. When you open it up after that season, there's the pearl. And again, please don't hear me minimizing the pain you're going through or the struggle you may have or will face this week. It's real. But my intent for me is to give it some perspective. Put God into the picture. His purpose of pointing you to Christ. Taking away all else to use you for His service. And there's no promise just because we had this message and because maybe you've got a different perspective than you came in with. There's no promise that the darkness is going to lift today or this week or this year. It may be God's good pleasure for it to continue. So what do we do? Cry out to God in worship. You cry out to God, this I know, this is who you are. This is what Christ has done, even when I don't feel it. This is true. Finish what you began in me for your glory, for my joy, and my usefulness to you in spreading your glory to the ends of the earth. Well, I can tell you from personal experience, doing that is beyond my ability. We need God's help.